Tula. What can you learn by travelling 200 kilometres south of Moscow? Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash shadows. But now, on with today's programme. When I travel to Russia for more than a short hit-and-run visit, I do like to get out of Moscow, at least for a while, however much fun Moscow is, because there is a risk always that you end up judging the entire country by what's inside the Moscow bubble or the Umkad ring road. And this time, took a couple of nights down in Tula, as I say, about 200 kilometres south of Moscow, the capital of the, the oblast, the region of the same name. And it has to be said, it turned out a, a really rather exquisite little city. Um, I will, in due course, be putting up a sort of photo essay um, on, on what I saw and, and my various thoughts in my very, very occasional and sporadic travel blog, which is called Travels in Deepest Muscovy, if you want to go and have a look. But as I said, it, it'll be a while before anything is up there. But rather than just simply delivering a travelogue, what I wanted to do was to talk about Tula, essentially the city primarily, both for its own sake and also, above all, to illustrate some wider observations about what's going on in Russia at the moment. But first, just as a bit of a scene-setter, what what can we say about Tula? Well, I mean, its history goes back to probably the 14th century. It was uh, a possession of the Principality of Ryazan, which in the 16th century instead was taken over by Moscow, who... Muscovite princes built a brick-built Kremlin there and particularly because it was one of the the anchor points of the so-called Balshaya Zasechna Cherta which is the sort of the great abatis line which is a a chain of walls and fortifications to hold back above all the threat from the Crimean Nagai Tatars. It also has a very, very strong and long history of metalwork, and especially gun-making, which I suppose is probably inevitable when you have a confluence of the presence of deposits of iron and also being a militarised borderland. In 1632, it was actually a, a Dutch merchant who established a foundry in Tula, and then in 1652, it was more Dutch entrepreneurs who built a factory there, working on that. And by the end of the 17th century, there were at least a thousand gunsmiths working in Tula and the and environs. Now, I've got to remember, at this point, this was very much uh, sort of not just handmade, but, but artisanal. No one was working to a single standardised pattern or anything like that. In 1712, then, as a result, it was Peter the Great who commissioned the creation of uh, an arms factory. Well, it was two, actually, but they became the Tula Arms Factory, which is still in existence today. And particularly at this time, there was a, a blacksmith entrepreneur called Nikita Demidov, who very much uh, was responsible for creating a much, much wider uh, arms and metallurgy industry throughout the city and is reflected by the heroic statue to him in front of the Museum of Armaments in the city. 
And it is, speaking of heroes, one of the so-called hero cities because of its role in the Second World War. Uh, particularly, I mean, Heinz Guderian's Second Panzer Army was basically stopped just outside Tula and uh, the city secured the southern flank during the, the Battle of Moscow. It's quite actually interesting when, when you take the train down, it's a high-speed uh, Lastochka, the, the train route almost reads like an itinerary of Second World War battles. Um, Ariol, which was occupied by the Germans and then basically devastated in the name of liberating it. Kursk, site of the biggest tank battle uh, of the war, Prokhorovka, and so on. So this is very much, this is a, an area which has been fought over and has had a militarised role going obviously not just way back to, to the Tatar days, but much more recently. Now it's a provincial capital, still very much, I would suggest, in, in the shadow architecturally of its Soviet past, I mean, particularly from the big Lenin statue in the central Lenin Square, which is at the end of the, yes, you guessed it, the broad, straight Lenin Street, to all kinds of other sort of cultural relics that are there. And yet, I would say it's, it's for all that very sort of definitely on the cusp of the 20th and 21st centuries. It's a tourist centre, especially known for its uh, tradition of Priyanki, which are sort of jam-filled slabs of gingerbread, and also metalworking of every kind. There is a saying, you don't take a samovar to Tula, which has the same kind of implications as not bringing coal to Newcastle. In other words, there's already a lot there. In fact, for that matter, I note that it has no uh, twin town in the UK. So maybe Sheffield ought to have a think about that, possibly consider it. I'm a great fan of person-to-person -person and city-to-city -city diplomacy, just to help fill in some of the fairly obvious and gaping cracks in state-to-state -state relations. And overall, as I said, it's actually a rather lovely place, from its artfully remodelled centre, of which more are non, to the very sort of sizeable Belousov Park, which I should stress is named not after the current first deputy prime minister, but a local doctor and social reformer of, of the 19th century. And what makes it especially interesting, I think, from a sort of a wider perspective rather than just simply a, a tourist travelogue, is in some ways that it's, shall I say, not unusual rather than it is. In terms of GDP per capita, for example, it ranks as number 39 of Russia's 83 um, federal regions, that's equivalent to the maritime region, Primorsky, or Novgorod. Um, it's also, in technical terms, the equivalent of Peru, which, rather than saying anything, frankly, about Tula, illustrates the, the, the fallibility of cross-currency comparisons which have a tendency to mislead at least as much as they illuminate. Um, you know, I, I really think that uh, we, we shouldn't take that statistic for granted. And I also feel with a certain reluctance, because it is a very nice line, I need to wean myself off the, the parallels I sometimes draw in terms of Russia's GDP being equivalent to those of, say, Italy or Spain. Because as I said, they really don't actually do any country any justice. Beyond that, uh, Tula State University is apparently number 102 of Russia's almost 400 universities, and so on. In other words, 
it is, with all due respect to the place, nothing special, in the sense of it is not unduly privileged, nor is it some kind of a hellhole. So I think it does represent an interesting general illustration of, of what we can find. Now, first of all, I mentioned this is a provincial city. Now, that sounds like a very negative term. It's not in any way meant to be disparaging or patronising. It is just how it's described and what it technically is. And as a result, it's quite a striking mix. I mean, yes, you absolutely can see some, you know, styles of clothing, for example, which frankly are a decade plus out of date. And they just seem to be, in very impressionistic sense, in the middle of the sushi and pizza restaurant boom, which Moscow went through, uh, again, a decade plus ago. Honestly, what a combination. And so it's easy to sneer, and I'm sure some do. But actually, that sits side by side with what is actually a lot that, that is very modern, very up-to-date, and above all, that is, is modernising and, and has that right feel. And particularly, the thing that strikes me is, in a way, it illustrates the difference between what we could call the, the market-driven software of life and the infrastructural hardware. In terms of what can be essentially generated by the workings of the market, everything from banking services to the prevalence of bicycle delivery services and so forth, you know, it's all there. And it demonstrates the extent to which the market can be blisteringly fast when there's a buck or a ruble to be made. So that kind of stuff is there. But on the other hand, if we think of the hardware, things like the infrastructure of the city, well, look, that takes longer and that generally takes government money. And here, things are much, much more mixed. Um, there is a lot, for example, of what is very, frankly, dated rolling stock of buses, trams and trolley buses. But then there are also ones that are relatively new and frankly look as if they have been just simply bought uh, decommissioned stock from Moscow. Of, again, of which more are non. Um, they have moved towards the idea that you can pay as you get onto a bus with a credit card, which is great. But again, if in Moscow it's, there are terminals uh, by every, every entrance and you just tap it and you're done, here the driver has a little credit card terminal, so you have to hand him or her the card, they tap it and then they, they give it back to you. really slows things down when, when it's busy. But, you know, it's, it's that kind of measure. If you can't afford to completely retool your entire bus network, well, this is a relatively cheap, relatively easy way of achieving broadly similar results. You may well not be fascinated by the intricacies of Tula public transport payment methods. But again, it, it says something about the fact that there is an attempt to kind of move as far as possible towards the most modern standards. More broadly, I mean, if one looks at the, the, the reconstruction, not of the central and touristy parts of the city, but the more mundane bits, the housing blocks, particularly housing blocks away from the main streets, they're, again, very, very mixed. Some clearly serious disrepair, others which have clearly been recently remonted. Pavements, again, some of which is very rough. You'd find that in Moscow as well. But at the, on, the, on the other hand, clearly a big program of replacing old cracked pavements with, with new bricked ones. 
So, you know, generally speaking, again, there, there is this interesting mix. It is a sign that there is stuff moving. And I would add that this is happening now. This is not just, you might say, a result of moves that were made during economically better times, which are just still present. You know, one can see that, that there is work underway at the moment. So things, things are still happening. It's not just Moscow, however much it may be the, the vampire squid at the centre of the country. So this is something that I, I would really not want to, to, to undervalue. You know, it's a, it's a positive thing, the fact that it may not be at Moscow standards, but it's moving towards it. And it's very much, I would suggest, a way, evidence of the way that these sort of two economies, the market and the state, operate. The state one tends to focus on prestige projects. And we see that in, in Tula, there's like the Kazan embankment um, you know, which is a new new development uh, along the river. It looks looks very nice. Metalistov Street, which is a very very charming touristy street full of uh, churches and museums and restaurants and bars and shops selling sort of you know, local delicacies and such like. But it's all very very dependent on political priority, and as I said, it's very much there for show. And then you have the market economy driven by well the market so yes you know there are artsy developments like various clusters built on the sites of former industrial locations um, some very nice ones in fact there's uh, Octava with its uh, machine tool museum Likurna Loft an old booze factory Iskra and so forth but very much it's going to be shaped and developed and dependent on local resources and there clearly there are distinct limitations it's quite noticeable for example the number of lombards pawn shops that i saw which incidentally is something I, i've noticed in in moscow a lot more of them around than i remember even just what, 20 odd months ago um you know which again it's it's an interesting sign you know pawn shops tend to proliferate precisely when people feel very much at that edge of precarity so in other words, they're trying to maintain old standards of living, hoping that things will get better, rather than just simply adapting to new straightened uh, conditions, or just simply being in a position where they have nothing left to pawn. So again, interesting signs of stress within the kind of the local mundane economy. Though it's worth noting that the total entrepreneur debt is, I mean, has increased ever so slightly, but it's still well below its peak of 2014. So, you know, again, mixed signals as ever. But the thing is, because Moscow is so near, it's perhaps no wonder that one thing that the, the city and above all the region have experienced is a decline in population, which is something that actually has been targeted as a sort of particular um, priority to, to try to address. So for a place like Tula, it has to balance, shall we say, two roles, courtier and entrepreneur. You know, it has to get what it can from Moscow, that's being the courtier, and when I say Moscow, obviously I mean you know, the Kremlin or whatever. And, you know, it is, as a result, especially dependent on the nature of the governor, of which more in the second part of this uh, podcast. But it also has to build its own resources as far as it can, as the entrepreneur. And that often means actually developing into regional networks. Again, it's, it's quite interesting that, you know, in, in this, you know, massive, sprawling federal state, interregional relationships in many ways actually resemble what we would think of as international relations between sovereign yet 
interdependent economically nations. Um, so, you know, for example, it's not just Moscow in the sense of the Kremlin, but you know, clearly Tula develops all kinds of specific relationships with Moscow, the city, and Moscow, the region, in the hope that it can attract investment, but also gain other benefits. And conversely, Moscow in some ways acts like a state in what, for want of a better word, we could call foreign aid. It's quite interesting in terms of the relationship. I'm, I'm sorry, we're going to be coming back to buses again. But anyway, um, the relationship between uh, Tula and the Moscow Transit Authority. It's not just that it, that it, it sold them buses. It's also provided them, at, as I understand, a kind of cost price or maybe even less, um, technology and know-how to integrate its, its transport system. Um, and in fact, now you can actually use your Troika public transport payment card, your Moscow card, actually in, in Tula as well, which is in part meant to obviously make it more attractive to tourists from Moscow, but also says something about the integration. So, you know, you have these kind of interregional um, trade, economic and know-how connections, separate from anything that the central government might be doing, as, as regions basically almost treat themselves as, as microstates. And likewise, they also are involved in foreign relations. I mean, there's just been, for example, a, a trade mission from Tula that went to Ankara with the very, very specific goal of boosting trade with Turkey. And there are a variety of international trade connections that Tula specifically has brokered with other countries. So again, it says something about, I would say, the, the complexities. We, we have a tendency, rightly from the outside, to look at, at Russia and think Kremlin. And in terms of the things that primarily concern us, whether it's poisoning dissidents or, or posing potential security threats or making deals on cybercrime or whatever, yes, it's the Kremlin that matters. But we always have to remember, I think, the extent to which this is not a federation in a kind of truly meaningful sense but it is a federation in the sense of the Kremlin can't and doesn't even try to run everything about every single sort of uh, constituent element. This is not the Soviet Union. Next point, speaking of, of Soviet Union, the hero city. I mean, it, let's face it, Tula does make a really big deal of its hero city status. From when you get off the train at Tula Station, there's great statues and there's a, in fact, there's an old uh, wartime armoured train there um, to you know you go into the, the sort of center and there's sort of big displays and um, hero of well here of the Soviet Union and here of the Russian Federation the medal looks exactly the same really um, but anyway those those sort of hero medals are part of these light display um, you know, above above major streets so you know there, there is a very big deal made made of, of Tula's hero status. Now, in part, that's fine. I mean, that is general local pride. I'm sure you know Tula suffered in the war. It was one one of the pivotal points, and also obviously you know was a crucial source of armaments for the war as well. But it's also worth noting that it's probably a pretty good political card to play these days with the Kremlin, given Putin's uh, not just sort of attempt to, to cherry-pick the kind of history that he wants, but his particular determination to focus on the military glories 
he has inherited. Because it's not just World War II, it's worth noting, it's also that within Tula region there is the site of Kulikovo Field, the, the site of the famous battle between the armies of Prince Dmitry Donskoy of Moscow and the Tatar Golden Horde. So, you know, there there is a a big historical patrimony that Tula can draw on to try and um, to sort of play this up. And particularly this does relate even now beyond the, the simply political and historical to Tula's continuing role within the arms industry. I mean, everything from you know the, the 30 millimeter cannon on Terminator assault tanks, they come from Tula, Tula Mashzavod, to the VSS Vintores sniper rifles, which are so sort of visible in the hands of little green men in Crimea. They come from the Tula Arms factory. To, indeed, the uh, great, huge, chunky BM-27 Uragan, 220mm multiple rocket launchers, which, again, come from Tula, in this case, the Splav factory. They all come from here. And, well, firstly, that's one of the reasons why it's, it's no wonder that the, the security authorities can be a little bit jumpy. Um, in August, for example, the, the Federal Security Service arrested a Ukrainian, an alleged Ukrainian spy here. And also, it's why it's a sort of a part of the way that Tula sells itself to the rest of the country. There is this large, very modern museum of armaments, um, which is a true shrine to Russia's gunsmiths. And I think it's really rather cool, but then I would. Uh, it's even the fact that the building is built in the shape of a traditional medieval Russian helmet. For all of that, it, it's very much it's about the the need to sell the city and the region to the Kremlin. And again, I mean, I, I don't want to suggest that this is all just driven by that, but I mean, I do think it is one of the factors that that every region, every city has to find its unique selling point to a market of one sitting in the Kremlin. Why this place matters? Why it needs, therefore, to be cultivated? Now, I mentioned the uh, Museum of Armaments. I was able to, to visit that uh, and some of the other museums in Tula, but not, for example, to head out to Tolstoy's old sort of home at Yasnaya Polyana, or indeed um, go to the archaeological museum, I'm a great fan of, because of the sudden introduction in Tula of requirements to be able to show QR codes to prove that you've been vaccinated, but specifically you've been vaccinated with Russian vaccines if you want to get into public places like museums. Now, I said, I mean, this was it was a very sort of 11th hour announcement. I mean, what, two days before I checked the site, there was no mention of this requirement. It was just announced. And in some ways, it reflects Tula's track record. It has a history of being an early mover in terms of anti-coronavirus measures, and it's worth noting, obviously, there is a serious problem at the moment. But, you know, even if you go back to last year, Tula, again, was, was tended to be at, at the vanguard. And it's not so much because the region has a particularly high problem as, I just think, an example of the extent to which local administrations are both expected and indeed forced by the Kremlin to take the initiative and therefore, by extension, take the blame. And it reflects, obviously, the particular um, interests of, or concerns of, the city and region administration, 
but also the particular involvement of its governor, one Alexei Gennadievich Dumin. And again, he too, I think, represents an interesting case study into some wider trends within Russian politics. So let me talk about him after the break. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. So what can one say about Alexei Gennadievich Dumin, governor of Tula since 2016? Well, for a start, because he is still periodically, and I think, I think implausibly, being presented in various elements of the media as a future president of the Russian Federation, and indeed Putin's specific personal choice as such, he certainly does know how to flatter the boss. Um, in his birthday greetings to Putin this year, for example, and what did he say? He said, you are a true leader and man of your word. Citizens of Russia respect you for your strength of character, your ability firmly to defend the interests of the state and adequately respond to any challenges of our time. And indeed, no doubt, leap tall buildings at a single bound. But then again, there is quite a backstory, quite a long-term connection. He's a career security officer, he was within the, the FSB, and then he moved to the FSO, the Federal Protection Service. In that role, he eventually became, first of all, head of former Prime Minister Viktor Zubkov's security detail, and then deputy head of the Presidential Security Service. In other words, given that the head of the Presidential Security Service is in many ways is sort of a primarily administrative role, in practical terms... Dumin was basically head of Putin's close protection team. So obviously he got to see a lot of the body, as, as Putin is, is described. And you know, perhaps almost as important, one might suggest, is he often play, stood in as the goalie in Putin's night hockey league uh, team. It sounds silly, I know, but something like that actually is both a mark of particular presidential favour, but also a way of maintaining that, keeping your close personal links with him. Clearly, he's a man whom Putin trusted. And there was a point, there was a while, when actually Putin seemed to be looking to try and raise up a whole new cadre of the next generation of leaders of Russia, with a kind of, I almost have a feeling it's a little bit like one of these ghastly TV programs like The Apprentice or whatever, when you you know you have a bun- bunch of uh, wannabes who are all competing to get some particularly sort of prized position. But anyway, yeah, there, there was a sense of that. But of course, the people whom Putin trusted were really the people whom Putin knew. And given the extent to which he had increasingly withdrawn himself from a lot of the day-to-day activities of government and indeed the country, I mean, to a large extent, we are talking about personal aides, bullet catchers and umbrella carriers, you know, the people who were basically his, his functionaries rather than necessarily people who had distinguished themselves. And therefore, it's a, it is a mark that this particular generation of so-called Putin's adjutants, on the whole, did not really distinguish themselves. Now, 
In, in Dumin's case, I mean, first of all, he was moved to GRU, the Military Intelligence Service, where he seems to have been in charge of the Special Forces and reportedly was involved in the extraction of disgraced and downfalling Ukrainian President Yanukovych, for which he has been much, much fated, though I'm not really convinced that that actually was probably that operationally complex a mission, given that, you know, basically Yanukovych was just buggering off out the country and no one seemed particularly to be trying to find him or stop him at the time. But still, maybe I'm being unfair. Perhaps there is much, much more to it. And certainly this seems to have been the, the basis on which he was awarded the Hero of the Russian Federation medal. He was definitely moving fast, though. In 2015, he was made first Chief of Staff of the Ground Forces, now, again, now chief of staff, chief of staff is actually a very, very technical job. It's not just simply a figurehead. It is the person who is basically in charge of all the nuts and bolts. And I don't get the sense that he was tremendously successful at it, that essentially he had to allow his various deputies to, to really sort of run, run the show. But it didn't really matter because later that year he was moved on again to become deputy minister of defence. You know, this is an unprecedented rise. And no wonder people at this point were definitely sort of pointing him out as one of the sort of potential successors to the boss. Well, he then was being mooted as the new head of GRU, military intelligence. And this is where things began to go awry. And again, it's a really interesting case study of the limitations of presidential power. It seems pretty clear that both Defence Minister Shoigu and Chief of the General Staff Gerasimov, who are the people who would actually be his immediate superiors if he became head of military intelligence, really did not feel that he had what it took. But again, how do you say no to the boss? And the answer is you can't directly, not without massive political and personal risk. And, you know, Shoigu is very close to Putin, but even Shoigu has to, has to move very, very carefully. But the one thing he is, it seems, is very, very good at knowing how to, how to play the boss, let's say. So what they did is, in classic bureaucratic terms, they didn't say no, but they did stall. They did generate bureaucratic reasons why this could not be sort of moved forward at, at this particular stage. Anyone who ever watches Yes Minister or Yes Prime Minister knows how that works. At the same time, there was an interesting campaign within the press, particularly amongst some of the journalists who tend to be quite close to, guess what, the Defence Ministry, saying that actually Dumin, although he has many, many wonderful qualities, again, isn't really quite the man for this particular job. And then what was arguably crucial was that the FSB actually threw its weight behind it. And I'm, I've talked about this in, in, in a previous podcast. FSB not usually grew's natural allies, but they didn't like the idea of, of the principle being established that a Putin favourite can just be dropped in to head an intelligence service. So eventually, I think Putin seems to have decided that, I mean, either he was convinced that, that Dumin wasn't the right man for the job, or just simply he realised that the political costs of pushing it through were too great, and also that it doesn't do Russia, it doesn't do Dumin, it doesn't do the Gru any good to have a leader who may well find himself at odds with the military intelligence apparat. So instead, 
that idea was dropped, and in 2016, he, Dumin was instead given the well, what seemed to be a sinecure of being first acting governor of Tula, and then actually he was uh, voted in with the support of both United Russia and the, the, the usual supine cronies of the Liberal Democratic Party, with a stonking 84.17% of the vote. So the question was whether or not that was actually going to be, in some ways, a sort of a, um, say, a face-saving end to Dumin's career. Doesn't seem to have been. So what I think this whole story shows is, first of all, as I say, the, this period of, of the rise of people whom Putin personally knows, but also the limits of their, and indeed, presidential power. And the extent to which actually the individual's nature then really matters. It's quite interesting that, that Dumin is high profile, but that's not necessarily always going to be a good thing. A couple of surveys, both of which people have questioned the uh, methodology, so don't take them too seriously. But nonetheless, let, let say some interesting things. One by Medialogia, look at the profile of individuals in the social media world as a, as, a, as a whole. And they found the Jumin coming number four amongst the governors within the central federal district. And in some ways, I mean, it's not terribly surprising, well, certainly some of them, um, number one, Mayor of Moscow, Sabyanin, tremendously powerful, essentially a minister in his own right, as well as very active in social media, and also very active in promoting positive uh, presence in social media through sort of various shall I say, media management services. Number two is Varabyov, the governor of the Moscow region. Again, no real surprise. The only real sort of peculiar case in mind was actually that number three is uh, Rudenya, the uh, governor of Tver, which, I mean, considering that I mean, he, he isn't even on social media, um, doesn't seem to be particularly active in trying to promote it, but what the hell. So anyway, so okay, so, so Dumin is number four. So according to this, he's much talked about. However, according to a separate survey by Pravda Serm, uh, on governor's trust ratings, Dumin comes fourth from the bottom overall. So well-known, but not necessarily trusted. Which is perhaps one of the reasons why there was, again, a lot of talk that he would not be standing for re-election in September. Stanislav Belkovsky, the, the famous veteran uh, political analyst, said on Echo Moskvi in, back in April, that if he wasn't going to become head of the FSB instead, which Belkovsky had previously predicted, then instead he may well become the next Minister of Defence. Well, that's, that's quite a, a prediction. But in fact, as it was, Dumin stood again, as interestingly, again, not uniquely, but interestingly, as an independent rather than United Russia candidate, though again he had United Russia and Liberal Democrats support, and once again, one handily with 84% of the vote, even putting aside the clear issues of administrative resource being thrown behind an incumbent and just outright rigging of the vote. You know, nonetheless, if you've got an 84% um, share of the overall vote with the communists coming second at, uh, I think it was about 9%, um, then, you know, it actually says that you actually have a fairly decent support base within your own region. So that issue of trust would presumably have to be about people in other regions rather than in, in Tula itself. 
So the interesting thing is that he has actually apparently both established himself within a region which he had no particular connection before and also seems to be committed to that. I mean, he himself has, and again, one always has to treat the statements by politicians with considerable caution, if not outright contempt, um, that you know, he himself said that he's not looking to return to Moscow, that he's very happy in, in Tula and so forth. He's certainly putting a fair amount of personal effort into it. And this says something about second key point, which is the problems of an incoming governor who is an outsider to the local elites. Because one of the reasons which perversely may have actually helped Dumin was a widespread perception that he is often at war, might be a slight overstatement, but certainly in conflict with the established regional elites. I mean, he brought in his own team, first Deputy Governor Vyacheslav Fyodorishev and Deputy Governor Sergei Yegorov, and you know, they seem to have, at the moment, a fairly decent reputation for efficiency and honesty, not things that necessarily go together um, within the Russian system. And what's really interesting is actually that one of the primary sources of opposition to Dumin seems to actually come, be coming from within the Federal Security Service, the, obviously the regional Federal Security Service particularly the remaining clients of the man who was the head of the Tula division of the FSB until 2013, Lieutenant General Viktor Batutin. Now, he then moved on to actually become head of the FSB's Central Inspection Directorate, which gives him a lot of oversight power, a lot of political kind of behind-the-scenes power within the FSB. And it is clear that he has used a fair amount of that to maintain his own people in significant positions within Tula. I mean, the current head of the Tula FSB, Dmitry Gordin, who's been there since 2019, but it's still actually not entirely clear whether he is one of Batutkin's men, whether he's Dumin's man, whether he's his own man, or, or what. The point is, though, that actually it's generally regarded that the real power within the FSB in, in Tula is not him, but rather the head of the personnel department, Vladimir Gushin, who is allegedly very much Batutkin's representative and pretty much untouchable. And again, these are all allegations. I have absolutely no knowledge if they are true, etc., etc., but you know, it's, it's, again, often discussed that he is, in fact, the kind of person who, if you are a, a business person in Tula and you have some kind of problem that needs solving of whatever kind, you go to Gushin and he will sort it or he will pass you on to whoever can sort it, but not without a fee. I, I don't know. But again, it, it, it makes this point the extent to which you have not just a central national leadership and regional leaderships, but regional leaderships themselves, which often have to walk this very, very difficult path of how you interact with what are often deeply established um, local elite structures, which may well be thoroughly corrupted, frankly, will be more often than not. But the point is, they're also often incestuously interconnected.
from everything from business dealings to social interactions to who has married whose daughter and such like whose godfather to whom it's very difficult to actually break in and particularly and this actually leads me to my kind of third broad point i would, would want to use Dubin to talk about you know it raises the question of actually how far does the the character the nature the interest the personality the connections of a governor really matter because the governor's in an interesting position on the one hand, they are clearly there to be the Kremlin's foreman. And we've seen this, and particularly with this rise of all the sort of you know, KPIs, key performance indicators, um, to, to measure how well governors are doing, with one of the key future tasks clearly be to get the vote out and to get the vote right in 2024 for the presidential elections. So, you know, you are basically expected to be the Kremlin's man in the region. But... If you're actually going to do your job, if you're actually going to have any serious traction on the system, in some ways you also have to be the region's union shop steward, willing to champion the region's interests, or particularly the interests of the region's elite, to the centre. Um, and that's, that's actually uh, you know, a, a, a complex and, and, and difficult task. And if you look at how far Duman has been successful in actually bringing resources and political latitude to Tula, as well as actually imposing his own authority. Well, look, it's often hard to know how far one should assume that Dumin himself is, is responsible for you know, the real movement that has been taking place in, in Tula, the city, how far it's because he's able to get resources from the regime, how far it's because he's actually been able to make things run a little bit more efficiently and a little bit more honestly. You know, but nonetheless, you know, some of the things we, we, have, we have seen that actually one probably can give him at least partial credit. First of all, the, the, the prettification, things like, like the embankment, which I've mentioned, but also, which actually incidentally has had quite a reputation for being something that relatively speaking, by the standards of Russian public projects, seems to have been done not just quickly, but also honestly. Um, but more significant things as well. The creation, for example, of a regional special economic zone, Uzlovaya, and successful movement to attract various forms of business. I mean, just to give a couple of examples, Procter & Gamble have moved their Russian sort of tax, head, tax base, shall we say, you know, where they are, are domiciled for tax purposes, to Tula. And likewise, China's massive Great Wall Motor Company has just opened uh, a factory building Haval cars in Tula region. They opened that in, in 2019. And generally speaking, Tula is actually at the moment quite consistently remaining around number three of Russian regions in terms of a positive investment climate. Now, why that's significant is not just because this is not, not just simply because you've got tax breaks or you've got the right infrastructure or you're in the right part of the country, but also in terms of the legal and other terms business environment for, for investment. Now, is that Dumin's work? It's hard to know. I mean, I don't see Dumin as being someone who has a, an intrinsically deep understanding of precisely what makes a successful market economy work. But on the other hand, there, are, there is a suggestion that he has at least grasped two concepts. One is the notion of just to do no harm, which is, let's be honest, the first principle that politicians ought to embrace and very, very rarely do. 
But secondly, that precisely you rely on experts and specialists, the people who do know what they're doing. What he is able to do, precisely because of his time at the centre, is, I think, be a, a powerful ambassador and representative. And I don't just simply mean with the Kremlin. I mean, for example, you know, he's clearly sort of worked very t closely with Gazprom, um, the, the natural gas giant, and also with RGD, the, the, the railway company, the national railway company, which has, for example, announced that uh, there will be a high-speed rail link from Moscow to Adler, down Sochi Woods, which will stop at Tula and will bring the already, frankly, quite quick two-hour, 15-minute travel time down to 55 minutes. So, you know, again, things seem to be moving, and at the very least, Duman has not been getting in the way. And it may not sound particularly impressive, but that actually represents a fairly positive trait. More to the point, as I say, he does seem to be, at least for the moment, because this is his job, committed to doing something there, that he can, what, what he can do. Of course, if you got a high-speed train link to, to Moscow, that might actually just simply make it all the more easy for people to leave Tula. But you never know. It could instead become a kind of, well, I wouldn't quite say a, a commuter village, but nonetheless um, somewhere where, where Muscovites might well move, take advantage of cheaper housing, easier opportunities to set up businesses or whatever. We'll just have to see. But let's face it. If we're talking about leaving Tula, which I have left, it's probably time for me to end this rather niche, but hopefully not uninteresting, episode of the podcast. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. И только будь, пожалуйста, со мной.